In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Barakai, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we have asked God to, uh, as we have read this word of God, let's ask God now to bless this reading of his word to our hearts and our lives. Let's pray. O Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Grant us faith to believe these words and help us to rest upon them such that we are not hearers only, but doers as well. And will you, Lord, help me by your spirit to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. All these things we pray in his name. Amen. A word perhaps we aren't fond of hearing is rebuilding. It's certainly a word that's occurred to me frequently in the past few weeks. If you think about all the things that have been in the news, floods in Baton Rouge, an earthquake in Italy, even as uh, the people in Syria and Iraq have been freed from ISIS and returning to their homes. We've had fires in California and even in Canada in the last few months. And in every one of these situations, people have been displaced from their homes and in many cases, their homes destroyed. And, and, and when it's over, rebuilding becomes the principal question. But rebuilding requires us to answer a couple of questions. First of all, is it over? And second, is it going to happen again? And if you lived here in Florida in 2004, you know what I'm talking about. Just as People were picking up the pieces from Charlie. Less than a month, Francis would come along. And then Ivan two weeks later. And then Jean a week after that. And perhaps every time a storm came through, people would think, okay, now it's time to rebuild, but yet another storm would come, leaving people wondering, is it over yet? Now, this is precisely the situation that Zechariah's readers were in. The covenant people of God had been taken into exile because of their rebelliousness against God. He had warned them time after time to turn back to Him, repent of their sins, and yet they hadn't, as we've read and been reminded in these verses. And, but now the time, in Zechariah's time, the time had come that the storm was over. The people were returning. But the signs of hope that people needed to rebuild were not obvious to everyone. And they were 
rightly asked the question, was the storm, the storm of God's anger toward them, was it over? And is it going to be worth it to rebuild? Uh, That is not a dissimilar situation in which we live. If you are a follower of Christ, you look around you and the world is not the way it ought to be. And perhaps there are promises that you think God has made that don't seem to have been fulfilled yet. What is the status of the promises? Is rebuilding worth it? Or if you are a seeker, you look at the world and you say the world is not as it ought to be. Where are the promises that God might make to me as I live in a world that doesn't always offer hope for rebuilding? And so whether you're a follower of Christ or whether you're somebody who is seeking answers from God, we all are in that same situation as Zechariah's readers. Exile is ended, but restoration is not yet apparent. And so for the next two weeks and then for a few weeks after that, I'm going to be opening Zechariah with you and looking at what words of hope God offers us, hope for rebuilding, hope for resting upon God's promises, even when His promises are not obviously being fulfilled. And we want to look at this together and gain not only what hope there was for Zechariah's readers and listeners, but hope for us as well who stand in a better place even than his readers. Uh, A few words about Zechariah as we begin, and I will be with you uh, periodically throughout the fall to continue uh, this study of Zechariah. Uh, Perhaps uh, you might be wondering, um, we three musketeers from uh, RTS, Dr. Futado, Dr. Allen, and myself, you might wonder, uh, we are not spreading Girlish rumors about Christ the King Church, so just we can, so that we can just keep coming back to be with you. <laughs> Although that would be a great temptation. And I asked the elders. I said, uh, "Is the church up for more Old Testament, or shall we return to the New?" Well, the bargain we struck was the second to last book of the Old Testament. We're almost to the New Testament. But one thing I want to be apparent throughout our looking at Zechariah is that Zechariah is full of gospel promises and gospel reality. Uh, The style of Zechariah will become apparent to us in the coming weeks as we start to look at at night visions. Uh, Zechariah is a little bit like uh, the book of Revelation. It's uh, a bit mysterious at first look. And so it is what we call apocalyptic in nature. It has angelic messengers, symbolic numbers. Uh, It takes place during a time of social upheaval like the apocalyptic books tend uh, to do. And more than anything, perhaps, an apocalyptic book opens heavenly realities to people who live in earthly existence so that we don't simply continue to look at life on the horizontal. But just as John did in the book of Revelation, we will see heaven opened to know God's mind about the times in which we live. You'll recognize, if we get that far, 
some very familiar things in Zechariah. Uh, next week we'll be looking at four horsemen. So they didn't just show up in the book of Revelation. These four horsemen were around even in the Old Testament. Uh, in chapter 9, you would recognize uh, the, the words, Behold, your king is coming, mount a, mounted on a donkey, upon the foal of a donkey. Remember, those were the words that were said about Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Or you might be familiar with uh, what is said in the 13th chapter, Strike the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. These words were said of Christ when he was seized to be crucified. So you'll find some things strange, some things new, but you'll also find many things familiar as we look together at this book. It's helpful to locate where Zechariah is in terms of the history of the Bible. Uh, in, um, in the very opening verses, you see a date. You see in the eighth month in the second year of Darius, uh, that would be in the fall of 520 B.C. Now, that year itself might not be meaningful to you, but let's put it in the context of other things that have happened. Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, those who had remained faithful to the Lord, were still taken into exile in 586, and that would be about 66 years before this. And you'll read about that in the book of Daniel, perhaps, or the book of Ezekiel. But then after the time had passed for Israel to be chastised, to be disciplined by the Lord, God, through His providence, caused Cyrus, the Persian emperor, to issue a decree that the Jews should be permitted to return to their homeland and to, be, to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, and to rebuild the city whose walls had been torn down. That's a story you read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. But they had been back in the land now, if my math is correct, about 18 years. And signs of rebuilding were not apparent. Uh, if you remember the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, temple building, the rebuilding of the temple had begun, but some of the neighbors around Israel were concerned with that, and they, 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 uh, they, they came against God's people, and they sent word back to the emperor, and the people became discouraged with the opposition and gave up rebuilding the temple. Uh, and rebuilding the temple was important because God hadn't promised only that His people would return to the promised land. More importantly, God had promised that He would return with them. And so the rebuilding of the temple, the temple of Solomon that had been destroyed, the rebuilding of that temple was important as a symbol and as a sign that God was among them. The book of Haggai takes up that whole subject after this long delay the rebuilding began and finally was completed just about four years after the date we see here today. And it is a day of celebration, but also still a day of uncertainty. Uh, that's a bit of the context of Zechariah's prophecies. And, and the final thing that is worth uh, noting is Zechariah's name. His name means God remembers. God remembers. And that name in itself can encapsulate so much of what this book teaches. 
God has not, as the psalmist at one time feared, God has not forgotten to be gracious. But in fact, as we go through the book of Zechariah, we'll see that God is actively at work fulfilling His promises. And the only difficulty sometimes was for people to imagine how massively, how expansively, how unimaginably God would fulfill His promises. And so that's a bit of the context of this book that will carry along with us throughout our series on the book of Zechariah. So now let's look at these first six verses and see how they begin this message of, of hope for people who, for whom exile has ended, but restoration is not apparent. First, I want us to see in the first couple of verses particularly, but throughout, that God's word is his deed. God's word is his deed. Zechariah is reminding God's people of what perhaps they should have remembered already, and many did, no doubt, that when God had said for their fathers, the generation that went into exile, when he had said to them, if you don't turn from your sins and turn back toward me, disaster will come. The Lord was very angry with your fathers, we're told in verse 2. And uh, as a reminder in verse 3 of what God had said to their fathers, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Verse 4, Don't be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord. And you might have noticed how much repeated that phrase is, Thus says the Lord of hosts. It's repeated perhaps as many as four times here. Zechariah is reminding them that what God had said would happen, happened. And he puts a punctuation mark on that reminder in verse 6. My words and my statutes which I commanded, my servants the prophets, through my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And he points out in verse 5 that your fathers have gone the way of men. Where are your fathers now? And the prophets, even the prophets who prophesied these things, they have gone the way of men. And yet God's word continued to stand. And it's a reminder to us that God's word is his action. God's word never fails. There are a lot of people today, and I sometimes browse my way through Christian television uh, just for my enlightenment, if not my edification always. And there are a lot of people who will say what God's mind is, what God's will is, but we have been given a clear way to understand what God's mind is and what God's will is in His Word. The prophet Isaiah said this, didn't he, in Isaiah 55. He said, my word will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. That the word of God abides forever. And it is a sure and certain foundation on which to live life. So we don't have to be ignorant of what God's will is. We don't have to guess what God's will is. We don't have to try to find our way in the dark. We know what God's will is because He has revealed it in His Word. 
One commentator has pointed out that the prophets of uh, the Old Testament, they didn't come as philosophers trying to uh, sort out life. Uh, They were not even like the preacher in Ecclesiastes who says, life under the sun is hard to figure out. Life just seems like one endless cycle as life, quote, under the sun, as the book of Ecclesiastes says. No, we have a clear guide to life, the word which is a lamp to our path, a light to guide us in life. Uh, It is uh, sweet, it is precious, and it is the foundation on which we live our lives as followers of Christ. There is a, a, a switch, if you will, that, that clicks in the mind and the heart of someone who decides to follow Christ. And it is that they will follow God's word wherever it leads them, wherever it takes them, that, that it will exhibit the spirit which Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Uh, it's, a, it's a very subtle thing in the, in the life of a person, and perhaps you might fit in this category of ambiguity about confidence in God's Word. Uh, yes, the Bible has a lot of wisdom to offer us. There are times we can find help from it to live life. But it's a wholly different heart and mind of someone who says, I will go where it leads me. I will take my stand, as Martin Luther did, uh, as we even anticipate in the coming years, celebrating that time where he nailed the 95 Theses to the door at the castle in Wittenberg. And Luther said later, he says, upon the word of God, here I take my stand, I can do no other. Is your life a life which has decidedly chosen, without reconsideration, no looking back, that I will live my life based upon the Word of God. This is what distinguishes the person who will abide in this life. Not one who equivocates, not one who will consider every individual advice or direction from God of whether or not he will follow it or not. Zechariah reminds the people that the Word of God abides and it stands And it is the basis on which to navigate life. When we live in a time where exile has ended, but the promises don't seem to be a reality, we live by faith by living in confidence on God's guiding word. God's word is his deed. But secondly, Zechariah would have us remember also, not only is God's word his deed, but God's word is reality. God's word is reality. In the midst of the horizontal confusion, uh, the temple is partially begun. I I, uh, travel to the Bahamas frequently to work with some churches over there. And Bahamian home construction is entirely different than uh, what you normally see in the States. Uh, There's not a large mortgage industry. And people pay as they go. And so you can see a foundation of a house has been laid, but it might take years to build upon that foundation and put up walls. And you might see a house with walls without a roof, and eventually a few years later see a roof, and by and by over time the house will be built. Well, uh, that might be good in terms of financial prudence, 
But when, you're, but when we consider the house of God not being rebuilt, it's a whole other thing. God had promised to return to Jerusalem, to return to his temple. But the temple was uh, like, a lot of, uh, like a lot of housing developments in Florida starting in 2008. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to, over to Rotunda in the Englewood, Venice area of Florida. A great planned community with no houses. Uh, this was the state in which God's people lived, and they're wondering what is the status of the promises. Uh, Furthermore, what is going to keep them from following the same path as their fathers? Will, Will God deal with them similarly as he had done before? But you see, the promise of God was that when exile ended, it ended. Uh, Jeremiah said it would be 70 years until uh, the exile would be over, and now we're approaching that. Um, Would God return? And so uh, these verses as well, and especially the the night visions, which we're going to see in the coming, uh, coming weeks, are saying there is a higher perspective. There is a divine reality that we can't simply look at life on the horizontal because when we do, we see confusion and we see chaos and it can even bring doubt about God's promises and particularly God's promises as they respect us. Perhaps you set out on the Christian life expecting certain realities and yet those realities don't seem to be sprouting up as you expected. The writer of Hebrews notices this when he says in Hebrews chapter 2, we do not yet see all things subjected to him as we will one day see them. As theologians have helpfully coined the phrase over the years, we live in the already and the not yet. And so how can we live both in possession of the promises and yet still awaiting their fulfillment? We have to have God's perspective. This is what happens in Revelation 4 and 5. The the followers of Christ were being persecuted. Life was chaotic. There was hostility toward them as believers. And so God said through his, uh, His angelic messenger, He said to John the Apostle, Come up here. Come up here. And He takes him up to the very courts of heaven, to the throne room of God, to see the world from God's perspective to see the sovereign seated on the throne, to see the holy ones in perfect and pure worship of God. And so even as this book begins with a reminder that God remembers His promises, they are a reminder to us that we need God's Word to, to, uh, to expose the world the way it really is. On the horizontal the world is often a hopeless place. Or strictly on the horizontal, it might seem like, well, we just have to make the best we can of what we have and just get along and cope. And we settle for less. Our expectations drop. This was a great temptation for those covenant people of God who had been brought back from exile. Were they simply to settle... Or were they to fix their hope on these grand and glorious promises of God dwelling with His people, God blessing them, God causing them to to prosper and to to live together as the people of God. 
You see, we need God's Word to cut through the fog of war. You know that expression, right? And the, 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 the first casualty of war, they say, is what? Truth. And it's not simply because sometimes we're fed propaganda during times of war. It's because in the, in the heat of battle, in what's called the fog of war, it's sometimes hard to tell what's actually going on in the battlefield. But the Word of God cuts through the fog of war and tells us no matter how difficult life seems, no, no matter how far off the promises seem, that it cuts all that fog away to see, to see that God reigns, that He is committed to His people. His promises have not failed. You'll find a, an expression through the book of Judges, not one word of God failed. Even Israel in the chaos of the, of the time of the judges where enemies continued to oppress them from every side were reminded in the book of Judges that not one word of God had failed. And so we need God's word to cut through the fog of war to see life as it really is so that we can live by faith and not by sight. Because to live by sight is to live down in the muck and the worry and the fear of life. But to live life in the light of God's Word, which exposes reality as it truly is from God's point of view, is a basis for hope. It's a basis for rebuilding. It's a basis for stepping forward and following God's will, knowing that not only is He a God who exists, but as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, that He is a rewarder of those who seek us. Uh, seek Him, that God is a good God, even in the midst of a hard life. So God's Word is His deed. His Word stands forever. His Word is determinative of reality, but God's Word is reality. God's Word tells us the world the, the way the world really is from His point of view, from His sovereign reign, so that we can walk by faith. And finally, God's promises still stand. Zechariah is not simply reminding the people of God what once had happened. In verse 4, God extends the same promise that God had extended to their forefathers. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. God did not abandon His promises, even as He did not abandon His people. In fact, in the larger scope of the, of the Old Testament, it was in exile where God brought them back to Himself. In, in Hosea, you find a verse that says, I will take her into the wilderness, speaking of Israel, I will take her into the wilderness and there I will speak kindly to her. Even going back to the very beginning of Scripture, there was an exile, Right? When Adam and Eve acted according to their own autonomous will rather than the revealed will of God, instead of following God's word and trusting Him and walking by faith, they acted on the horizontal and exercised their own wills. Even in the midst of all that, God drove them out of Eden, but yet He drove them out of Eden with a promise that Eve would have a child that would be a head crusher but not simply any head crusher. Eve would have a child who would crush the head of Satan. 
You see, it's in exile where our hearts are softened, where the soil is cultivated so that we'll turn back to the Lord. You see, Zechariah isn't just reminding Israel that when their fathers had broken covenant, he had punished them. He is reminding them that the promise still stands for them, that if they return to him, he will return to them. God's promise is sure. God's promises call for a response from every generation. Even Moses, in reading the covenant in Deuteronomy, said, this covenant is not for them, meaning the generation who died in the wilderness, but he said it is for you and for your children. You see, the promise of God is always near. The the prodigal's father always stands ready to put the ring on our fingers and the the coat on our backs and to to celebrate by by slaughtering the festal calf and, and rejoicing at the return of his people to him. Peter said before the ruling council, when called to give an account, he related to them the story of Jesus, crucified and risen and ascended. And he said, repent therefore and return, so that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. God is more ready to receive us than we are to turn from our sin God is more ready to return to us than we are to return to Him. And yet Scripture says, Jesus Himself said, in fact, blessed are those who mourn. How is it that mourners are blessed? Because mourners are fertile soil for the grace of God. There is a a great threat, I realize, when you talk about the subject of repentance or mournfulness of looking at our condition and saying, uh, we've wandered from God's ways, we've sinned against God, we've sinned against others. There's a real threat at becoming a mourner because it, it involves giving in. You know, it's that, that great contest of wills that every person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ goes through, that great contest of wills to say, I have gotten myself into this mess of life and I have to turn from it and trust in God. I have to admit before God that I've sinned against Him and I've sinned against others. And yet times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord when we hear this promise from Him, this promise that still stands, return to me and I will return to you. This was all happening in the very life and time of Zechariah for the people of God. That God's word was his deed. That God's word was reality and his promises still stand. But we stand in such a better place than those who first heard the words of this prophet because God has proven his word is his deed. John's gospel begins with the announcement that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
that Christ not only is God in the flesh present with us, but Christ is the full expression of the will of God who stands revealing God to us so that we have this monument in Christ that God's word is His action. His action to show mercy upon us. His action to bring us life. His action to restore us to what we were made to be in His image. But in Christ we also find that God's word is reality. We can look to Christ and answer the question, how is God disposed toward me? Because, you know, that's often the question that we ask in the fog of war. How is God disposed toward me? Is God kindly disposed toward me? Or is He indifferent or hostile toward me? And we have in Christ God's final word, on that matter. That when Christ was sacrificed on the cross, when He was raised from the dead, we have God's final word that Christ made atonement once and for all in the heavenly realms, in the tabernacle made without hands, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we have been released from our debt of sin, And we have been restored to the status of sons and daughters of the living God through our elder brother, Jesus Christ. That Christ is the testimony of God about those who would believe in Christ. John Bunyan, who is known for Pilgrim's Progress, uh, also wrote... um, a uh, wonderful uh, uh, allegory called The Holy War, but of great interest to me has been his, bi- his spiritual biography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of, of Sinners. And Bunyan, in that autobiography, that spiritual autobiography, he recounts a time in his life where he could not be certain of whether or not he was right with God. And he describes walking along a road and he saw a puddle And he said, I'll know this, if I have faith and I say to that puddle, be dry, and that puddle dries up, then I'll know I have faith. But then he had a second thought, he thought, if I say to that puddle, be dry, and that puddle, be not dry, then I'll know I have no faith and I'll despair. And he sat down under a bush to think about the matter. And he said it came to him, these words... Thy righteousness is in heaven. And what Bunyan realized was his security before God was not in his own existential state. His security before God was neither in his confidence nor in his doubt. What made him secure before God was not what was within him, but what stood at the right hand of God, ministering for him, the righteous one, the victorious one, the one who testifies of our righteousness because we have put our faith in Him. We don't merely have a promise as Zechariah's listeners did, but we have that promise realized in our righteous one who stands in the presence of the Father. And so God's promises in Christ still Stand. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he said, I will not cast out anyone who will come to me. So, the beginnings of a reminder for God's people in a time where reality seems divorced from the promises. A reminder that the promises have been fulfilled in Christ and therefore they are certain to be fulfilled in reality as we walk by faith, as we trust in His Word. For what did Paul say? That if He did not spare His own Son, will He not give us all things in Him? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to us. So, yes... There is plenty of hope for rebuilding because the storm is over and because there is a future. Not merely on the word of Zechariah, but as that word has reached its fulfillment in the person and the work of our Savior Christ. So if you are standing in the middle, in that gap between promise and reality, wondering how to reconcile the promises of God with the reality that you see around you. You have the unfailing Word of God, the all-prevailing Word of God, and the promises of God which have been answered, as Paul says to us, as yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our confidence And he brings us all the hope that we need to live between promise and reality. Will you pray with me? O Lord, help our weak faith to embrace a strong, victorious Savior. Even as we look and see the ruins around us, And wonder about the promises. Help us to look to Him as the sign, as the surety that You have remembered Your promises to us. Help anyone here who might be wavering in their confidence in You especially, O Lord. And help those who seek You find a safe harbor, a place to build and live and grow an abundant life, even in the midst of a dying world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's now sing appropriately.